Okay. Okay, so as always, I'm first going to just give a, a brief overview of the Torah portion with a, a couple of insights here and there. And then, uh, and then we'll go over one more mystical topic that I prepared and how it affects us practically. So, as you know, the entire fifth book, Deuteronomy, the entire Chumash Tvarim, is all Moshe Rabbeinu speaking the last, his last sermon um, before the Jewish people, before he's going to pass away and Joshua is going to take over and bring the Jewish people into Egypt, into Israel, sorry. And, and over here, he, he, you'll see again, he's consistently concerned about, about the Jewish people learning the idolatrous ways from their neighbors. And he keeps on warning them about that. So we'll see that in this Torah portion too. Um, the topic that I'm going to end up focusing on is the very first blessing at the very first verse, full with my head, the very first verse of this week's Torah portion. Re'eh, Moses says, See, Anochi nosen lefnechem, I am placing before you. That means over here, Moses is talking nothing more as a prophet of God. Moses didn't give us anything, but it's God that gave us. And he's telling us that, see, that I'm placing before you today the blessing and the curse. And he goes on to say that the blessing, if you follow the mitzvot of Hashem and the, the curse, if you turn away and you don't. And then he starts giving again all these, uh, these, um, these commandments, uh, all focusing. He talks about the famous story that Joshua would later do, that they brought these uh, the big stones out of the Jordan when they crossed the Jordan and they brought it to the mountains, uh, the two mountains. One was called Mount Grizim and one was called Mount Abel. There's a, a three-way argument in the Talmud of exactly how the Jewish people were set up, whether they were all standing on the ground or whether six were standing on one mountain, six were standing on the other mountain, where the tribe of Levi themselves stood, these arguments. The simple story is that the tribe of uh, the Kohanim stayed in the valley. Six, six uh, tribes went onto one mountain, six tribes onto the other mountain. And from there, the Kohanim said, uh, you know, the entire blessing and the curse. Blessed be he who does A and B. And everyone would answer, Amen. Cursed be he who does so-and-so. And everyone answer, Amen. And that is the covenant entering into Israel with which they made with the Torah and with God. And then he goes on to say in chapter 12, he goes on again to warn that you're going to enter into the land of Israel. And in the land of Israel, you're going to see the other nations that you have to conquer and you're going to come across their idols. You're going to come across the adornments of the idols. And you should know that you should not allow any of it to remain. And you shouldn't start wondering, hmm, I wonder what it is to practice their religion. But rather remain faithful to the Torah. And he goes on and he talks about the place where God will choose. I want to stop for a moment. And I want to give a little bit of history here. So... Interesting enough, there is nowhere in the five books of Moses that it talks about Jerusalem. 
it only talks about the land of Israel. Rashi tells us and extrapolates from different verses that's talking about Israel. But it's important to know the history. When the Jewish people came into Israel, they didn't immediately build a temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't to become the capital until an interesting story happened between King David and God. So what happens originally is that it stood for 369 years in a place called Shiloh. And over there was the first transformation that no more was it made out of connected beams the way it was in the desert when it had to be mobile, but rather it had permanent walls. But in Shiloh, it still didn't have the roof. After 369 years, there was a terrible story with a high priest and then a war, and the ark actually was conquered. And then from there, it went on further and uh, it went through different places a short amount of time until finally King David was going to bring it to Jerusalem. Now, what happened was when they reconquered the ark, the ark was originally placed in a tent. And, uh, and we're taught how King David was looking out of his palace window and he sees the ark in a tent. And he says, how could it be that I'm living in a palace and God's ark is living in a tent. Now, at the time originally, that piece of Israel, which, which is Jerusalem, didn't even belong to the Jews yet. It was a very interesting scenario how that thing happened. But one day when King David is questioning God, where, and God tells him he should look at the sacrifice brought by so-and-so, and King David saw a miracle happen, that upon the altar that this person had in Jerusalem on Temple Mount, there was a, the smoke went straight up. Now, everyone knows that Jerusalem, especially the mountaintop, is windy. So he realized that this is a miracle, and he realized this is God telling him exactly, precisely where the gate to heaven is and that we're taught was exactly the spot where adam was created from it says that god took earth and formed the body by yitzar he formed the body from the earth so our sages tell us that god said let me take the sand from the place of mankind's atonement which would be the altar and that is also where noah built the ark when he came out of, when he came out of, uh, I'm sorry, when he built the altar, when he came out of the ark. We're also taught that that's precisely where Isaac was brought onto the altar by Abraham. It's also where um, Jacob had the dream with the angels going up and down the ladder. This was a very specific spot, and that's how ultimately through King David, we, by being told by God, um, to keep an eye out for that situation and that experience, that's how Jerusalem became the capital and the mountain, the Temple Mount, became known as the precise spot of the, of the Holy Temple. Now, of the Holy Temple itself, just that you should know, the most precise spot that has to be perfect 
is the place of the altar, not the place of the ark. And that is why after the first destruction and spending 70 years in Babylon, the prophets came back to build, when they built the second te te temple, just to prophesy on the precise spot of the altar. And that till this very day, because that was shown to King David to be exactly aligned where Jerusalem in heaven is, the Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem, and that's the gateway. And that's why till this very day, regardless where in the world you're praying, you always pray towards Jerusalem. So I just wanted to share that with you because it talks about here when, when God says, and when it'll come the time when there's the chosen place, not, no one can anymore go ahead and just create a mini altar called a boma to bring the sacrifice, but rather it has to be precisely in that spot. Another thing I want to share with you, which many people aren't aware of, that for the 40 years, that the, the 39 years that the Jewish people um, traveled in the desert, that were not allowed to slaughter animals just for personal usage. The only time they would be able to eat meat is if they brought that animal as a sacrifice, and then they were able to have parts of the animal. It was only here where Moses is now telling the Jewish people that if you will want to eat flesh, you can as long as you sacrifice it correctly, and it doesn't have to be done as a sacrifice to God. It has to be slaughtered correctly, not sacrificed correctly. And then, because of this, God now introduces us again. This is not the first time. The first time is in Leviticus. But God gives us very strong, very strong language that we are not allowed to eat blood. And it's very important to understand that he actually says it more than once and he uses the words rak chazak, strengthen yourself to not eat the blood. And our sages want to know what, what's the big issue? I mean, you'd think that we all are dying to drink blood and, and that God is warning us, don't, don't, you, don't you drink blood, strengthen yourself. So I'm going to give you a little bit of insight to this, but I want to first back up a moment and share with you. When we're taught that you're not allowed to eat blood, this applies to animals, both the type of animals that we consider domestic animals, such as cows, sheep, and also non-domestic animals, such as deer. So we can't eat any of the blood, and we also can't eat the blood of fowl. Now, the blood that was not considered blood according to the Torah, in the sense of prohibiting it from eating, is concerning fish. Fish does not have to go through that process of extracting blood. Now, understanding what it means that you're not allowed to have any blood means that we have to remove the blood from the animal or from the bird. Now, the chicken, whatever it may be. Now, number one, the law is that you have to do it within 72 hours. So just to explain how this works out practical, I'll share with you the story because my cousin, who's the Chabad emissary in Costa Rica, was involved with it. So I was able to hear the details 
to see how interesting modern day uh, technology and law, how we have to really understand what's going on. So for those of you that know, Israel does not use its own animals for meat. The most of the animals in Israel, the cows are used for milk. Most of the meat that's eaten in Israel is actually brought from abroad and primarily from Latin America, Argentina, Uruguay. And there was a time where they were also bringing meat from Costa Rica. Now, the Israeli shochtim, the slaughter, the ones, the rabbis that knew the laws of slaughtering would come and they would do the slaughtering and then they would ship the meat. Became a question because up to that point, the way they would do it is they would slaughter it. They would check the lungs to make sure, and I'll soon explain that law. They'll make sure that everything is kosher. And then they would take out the blood and they would ship it to Israel. However, they had a, a, a technical reason why they wanted to try to see if they can take the blood out in Israel instead of extracting it in Costa Rica. The problem is that the law tells us that ever after 72 hours, the blood has gone from being in the veins to being absorbed into the flesh itself and can no more be extracted. So they came up with an amazing question. What happens if we freeze the meat immediately? Flash freeze it. So then the blood is no more a liquid. So then the reason of our sages for 72 hours is put on pause. The 72 hours would start from when it defrosts. So I wanna just show you how serious it is, all the technical laws of extracting the blood with modern technology. And by the way, just in case you're interested in knowing what the answer is, I'm sure you can imagine that you're dealing with Jews. There's two opinions. But whatever it may be, I just wanted to bring out to you how serious this is. Now, the process of removing the blood has to be done in three stages. There is the soaking, there is the wiping down, the salting, the wiping down, and the soaking. By the way, just that you should know, again, modern technology working hand in hand with Jewish law, the Empire Chicken Plant has created, long ago already, they created a belt in which the chicken is on, and literally from the slaughtering of the chicken where the shochtam are lined up, until that belt finishes, it takes over two hours that belt keeps on moving so that it's moving slowly in the water, keeping it soaking because it's in the water, and then coming out, dried, keeps on moving, machines salt it, and all questions, again, are you salted? Can you salt the whole chicken? Do you have to cut it open? Whatever it may be, but it salts for that long period of time. Then the belt goes back into water, again traveling slow the amount of time so that at the end of the day the entire process that by the time the chicken is taken off the belt it is kosher and ready to go by the way so that you should know this is all very modern once upon a time it wasn't like that 
once upon a time that you went to the market, you bought your own chickens, you went to the shochet, he slaughtered it, and you had to cut open the chicken after it was killed, and now you have to go ahead and check the insides, and you had like a type of fence gate, because it has to be with holes so that it can drip out the blood, and you would salt it by yourself, and if you found any black and blue marks or questionable things, you yourself took the chicken to the rabbi and asked the rabbi, is this kosher or not? Today, we don't do that. As a matter of fact, in Florida, for a while, when I first came, there was a store that sold the chicken only slaughtered and not koshered, and the Jewish community would not buy from them. Because today, it's accepted that the average housewife or, or husband does not know the laws, is not expected to kosher it. He had just, by the time you bring it from the store, it is to be already koshered and all. So you just can eat it. Now, the animal process obviously has the same thing. I want to just point out for a moment, because in this week's Torah portion, we talk about the, the laws of the kosher species or non-kosher. So I want to break down kosher. This is kosher 101. Step one of kosher is to know that there are species that are kosher and species that are not kosher. And the way we know whether the species is kosher or not, the Torah gives us two signs. One sign is split hoofs, and one sign is that it chews its cud. You have to have both, the species has to have both signs in order to be kosher. So if it only has one sign, for example, the pig, its front legs are split hoofs, it's not kosher. If it only chews its cud but doesn't have split hoofs, not kosher, which is, by the way, doesn't exist. But the bottom line is that what we do have is species that are kosher, species that are not kosher. Now that we know that cow is kosher, we still cannot go into Publix and buy any piece of cow. Why? Now, here we have to know three things besides the species being kosher. Number one, it must be slaughtered according to law. You should know that we find in the Torah the word vishachat, and it should be slaughtered. But you should know that the, the five most primary details which make a slaughtering kosher or not kosher is not mentioned anywhere in the Torah but rather was given orally from Moses that he received on Mount Sinai and is documented in the Talmud. Just that you should know, there are many instances that if you read the Torah, you have no idea what to do. For example, the tefillin. It says in the Torah clearly where you should put the tefillin, but it doesn't say anywhere what tefillin is supposed to look like. And if not for the Talmud, finally documenting the oral tradition that Moses brought from Mount Sinai, we would have no idea how tefillin is supposed to look. So don't, don't be alarmed, shall I say, that you're going to see that there are mitzvahs in the Torah, but we have no idea how to fulfill them without the oral tradition that Moses himself brought to us from Mount Sinai. Now, this koshering, this slaughtering has to be kosher, and after it's slaughtered in kosher way, there's another thing that you have to know. Now, in order to understand this, 
I want to introduce you to certain words. There is a word called nevela. Nevela is a dead carcass. That is not kosher. There's another word called treif. Most people know the word treif and they use it for everything. Treif is actually misused in modern day jargon. The word treif means toraf. It was attacked by a lion. So there's two different concepts in a kosher species animal. If it was not slaughtered right, it's called nevela. But what happens if when we open up the cow, we slaughtered it right, we koshered it right, we open it up and we see that the cow was wounded, a fatal wound. Now the definition of a fatal wound means that it would not be able to survive 12 months. That is a definition of treif. One of these examples would be a punctured lung. Punctured lung introduces a very famous word, word called glatt kosher. Once again, the word glatt kosher is completely misused by the masses. And, and it's not ignorance. It just became the jargon. That's the way we talk. The word glatt applies only with meat, not even with fowl. In other words, the word glatt is a word in Yiddish. It's not even Hebrew. And it means smooth. In Hebrew proper, it shouldn't, it's not called glatt. It's called chalak. Now, where does this word chalak come from? It comes from the fact that was the lung smooth or did it have scabs? Why is that such a big issue? For European Jews, this was a humongous issue because of what they ate and because of temperature and different weather changes causing mucus. You know, the inside of an animal, when you look at a science book, it looks very organized and pretty. But in real life, it's not. There's a bunch of gook going on there. And therefore, whenever there's any form of scab on a lung, we are worried what happened here. Was it just he had the cow had pneumonia or sniffles and, and, and it just got dirty and it hardened? Or did science, the biology of the animal, heal itself by covering a puncture in the lung with a scab to save its life? Which is the way God has created the body to continuously you know, protect itself. Now, in order to do that, I just want to tell you how we do it today. What we do today is we go ahead and Ashkenazim, not Sephardim, and I will share with you why. Ashkenazim have a rule. The first two scabs we will peel to see if there's a hole under it. Once there's a third scab, we don't touch the animal. The reason is because Ashkenazim historically lived in wet climates. It was almost impossible to find any animal that would have a lung with zero scabs. Thus, the rabbis instituted that up to three scabs will check. Now, the rabbis had a right to institute that because biblically speaking, you can check 100 scabs. The problem is not the scabs. The problem is if there's a hole. 
these Faradim, which historically did not live in that type of climate, but more in the hot climate, they didn't have these problems. And that's why up to this day, you have something called Chalak Bet Yosef, Yosef Cairo, which means that the lung had zero scabs. Now, the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim, they had to check for holes. And the way we do it is, we have a huge tank of water. We take the lung, we take the top of the lung, we put a pipe, a, 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 we connect a pipe, put it into the water, shoot air into the lung. If there's any bubbles, that's not good. Now, I'm just telling you the famous thing, the lungs. But actually, for becoming a rabbi, I had to actually take the, learn the laws and do the tests. And literally, we went through every organ of the body of the animal to know which is a life-saving organ and which not. Which can the animal do without and which not. So just that you know, that's the laws of trafe. So now you know that this, the, to have a kosher piece of meat, you need to have A, kosher species, B, slaughtered right, C, checked that the animal was not in any health position that it could not live for 12 months on its own. The next thing, as I mentioned to you, is the salting to make sure that, the, that there's no blood. I just want you to know that it is very normal. I remember my grandparents doing it. When you get to a certain age and because of your heart, you have to be careful with sodium. Kosher, chicken, and meat is a huge issue. It is impossible to get a kosher piece of meat that won't be high in sodium because of the salting process. So I will just tell you what I have witnessed. And, you know, it's, it's part of life they would actually soak the meat or the chicken overnight so that in the house. So try to get the salt out so that when you cooked it the next day, it wasn't high in sodium. Now, this is concerning animals. Concerning birds, you should know that from the biblical perspective, there is no signs. There is a list of non-kosher birds which means that most birds are kosher. And I'm just sharing this with you here in this week's Torah portion, just because we're talking about kosher, so I'm already using the opportunity to, to talk about all the parts of kosher. So therefore you should know that when it comes to birds, we, we extrapolate what the hidden message is, and I'm gonna soon talk about this, about not having predator birds. So much so, that there was a very holy Jew who lived 17 generations ago, and his name was the Shloh HaKodesh, the Holy Shloh. And he once was walking in the street and he saw a turkey attacking another bird. And he actually left in his will that none of his offspring should eat turkey. By the way, I don't know if my father, who's on this uh, Zoom with us, if he remembers this, but I have a classmate who's the son of the Rebbe's secretary. His name is Klein. The Yaman Klein's son, Levi, is my classmate. And one time he was in our house 
and my mother served sliced turkey, Lubavitcher sliced turkey. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't eat this. And my mother was, why are you kidding me? I went out of my way to buy Chabad turkey special. You know, Chabad means Chabad slaughtering. The turkey was never Chabad. But anyway, be it as it may, he, he actually told my mother the story. And he says, nothing but to do. It's just our family. We don't, we don't eat turkey. Again, why did the Shlach Kaddish write this? Because he saw the turkey being predatory. And we're soon going to talk about the deeper meaning of eating and kosher. Also, I want to share with you fish. Fish have to have fins and scales. So also, just that you should know, the fish does not need slaughtering. The bird and the, and the uh, animals do. Fish don't. Okay. Another thing, I just want to use this opportunity to really get some 101, even though it's not in the parsha, but the parsha allowed me to open the door for the laws of kosher. So I want to just share about it. Another thing you should know is that when it comes to the laws of kosher, there's a verse that says that you shall not cook a kid as in baby goat, kid in its mother's milk. And it says it three times. Now I want to share with you that studying the Torah is like playing Monopoly. If you don't read the rules and you decide how to play, you're not playing Monopoly. It may look like Monopoly. It may smell like Monopoly. It may feel like Monopoly. But if you don't read the rule book and play by the rules, it's not Monopoly. The same thing with the Torah. The Torah comes with a rule book. And the rule book, as it's known to us, is the 13, the 13 principles through which the Torah is to be extrapolated. We were given this from Moses handed down. There's different traditions and how to call it, prophet cloud, there's different, but basically this is the rules that was handed down. It's extrapolation. When you use these 13 rules of extrapolations, that is the biblical definition, not the rabbinical interpretation. Let me be clear with this. For example, we will extrapolate through these laws that we're not just talking about a goat and we're not just talking about its mother's milk. We will extrapolate that we're talking about any animal meat in any animal milk. That's what we extrapolate to be biblical, even though it doesn't say in the verse. Also, because it says three times, thou shall not cook, again, according to the rules that Moses gave us, we learn out, you're not allowed to cook it, you're not allowed to eat it, you're not allowed to have any financial gain from it. That means that I am allowed to sell pork to a Gentile, but I'm not allowed to sell a cheeseburger of kosher meat and kosher cheese even to a Gentile because I am not allowed to make money off that. Now, that is biblical. Then there is rabbinical, which made buffer zones. That's not the application of the rules. That is extra guidelines. For example, not to have fowl with milk, is actually rabbinical, not biblical. There's one opinion, but basically, this is the way we rule. 
So I want to just share with you that the things that we extrapolate from the Torah the way Moses taught us to is all biblical. The extra guidelines, the extra buffer zones, that's rabbinical. Okay? Now, you should know that from everything I just told you, every one of us sitting in this Zoom class or that will hear this Zoom class, most of your kosher issues will have nothing what to do with what we're talking about. Because as I already told you, today the store sells it to you ready to eat. So you don't have to know the laws about the blood. You don't have to know the laws about the slaughtering. You don't have to know the medical laws on whether this animal was going to live or not. So what happens between you and me in modern day commercial kosher is primarily the issue of the kitchen and the separation of meat and milk. Now, yes, there will be some times that you're going to have other issues. You brought something into the house, you didn't realize, you thought it was a kosher symbol, it wasn't a kosher symbol. Yes, but for those who live in America who have all these kosher symbols, Circle K, Circle U, Badatz, I can list you a whole list that you can just go on online. Just go to crc.com, which is the Chicago Rabbinical uh, Council, and they actually have a list of all the kosher symbols that are acceptable where they come from. What will become a problem for you and me is, oi, give out. Tati, what do I do? I just, by mistake, used this spatula, and I didn't realize, and this is now the chicken soup, and this is the dairy spatula. What do I do? That's going to be what we deal with today more than anything, which is very interesting, because if you follow what I just told you, not you're going to eat the spatula, and not you're going to eat the pot. That means that the issue here that we're worried about is that if you cook chicken in this pot, heat expands the pores, it absorbs chicken flavor. Then you went and you cooked it up again. And this time you had something dairy involved. Now you have expansion of pores, meat flavor, chicken flavor into the food. I'm sorry, meat flavor, milk flavor into the food. You got a problem now. That's going to be, and just sharing you, that is 99% of the phone calls that I get. And I want you to know about kosher. And I want you to know how technical this is. I'm really taking the time and making today about, about uh, kosher so we can really understand it. So I get a phone call, a true story. I get a phone call. The family was religious, the mother was from Russia, didn't really know the law, she meant well. She went and she put this into the microwave. Then the later the family comes home and they see that she put this into the microwave. They look at it and sure enough, O-U-D, which means it's dairy and the microwave was a meat microwave. Now we have a big problem. The dish that she used, the microwave that she used, eating the food, what is the law? Interesting enough, I want to just tell you what was the law here. I didn't notice until then because I had to look into it. Do you know that when you read the ingredients, it's written in the order of the quantity? The later on the ingredient is written in the list, the less quantity it has. The rabbi asked to know which number in the ingredient list it was. Because it was so late in the ingredient list, 
and there was so much of the first ingredients, whatever it was, flour, whatever it was. So he said that it isn't a problem because the flavor of the milk was so minute that there was 60 times the mass of other stuff. So the milk lost its identity in the mass. So again, I'm just giving you these details just to know how three-dimensional and full these laws are applied in the modern-day Jewish kitchen. Okay, moving right along here. By the way, um, let me just share with throw out there one more thing. <laughs> Very interesting. People travel. You go into a hotel, and you but you rented uh, you you whatever you got yourself a suite that comes with a microwave. Are you allowed to use the microwave because the microwave's not kosher? The people before you were not kosher. So I just want to give you an example of something that could be done. I mean, I'm not saying everyone's going to do this, but you should know that black and white lotus could be done. You take out the glass plate. You take out that little round circle with the wheels that turns. You clean the inside. You take a glass of water. You put it in the microwave. You turn it on to the point where you keep an eye on it that the water was bubbling for over three minutes. And in black and white Jewish law, you can use that microwave. Because what that bubbling did was it created the expansion of the pores and it brought out the flavor. And the reason why you can get away with a microwave doing this is because the microwave never had the food touching it. The food rather is because of the ear. So you're able to kosher it through the bubbling of the ear. I just, again, I'm just throwing out there how amazing modern day technology and kashris but, you know, you have to put the two together. Anyway, enough about this. Moving along because the time is ticking. So, um, again, he's talking about the idol worship. He's warning you about false prophets. Um, and that is very interesting. He's warning us we should not be afraid of false prophets. That's not an easy thing. Because if the prophet did things that showed you that he had powerful prophecy, and all of a sudden now he's giving you a prophecy which is exactly against the laws of the Torah. So you know that no prophet can ever permanently change something in the Torah. You have to stand up to this guy. And then most of us, you know, Jewish people specifically are very, very superstitious and don't like messing with people with spiritual powers. And God's telling you, make up your mind. Was it about him? Or was it about him being my messenger? And if it was about him being my messenger, then the moment he turns away from that, he should not have any influence on you. Very powerful. Anyway, um, another thing I want to just talk to you about is the laws of charity. In this week's Torah portion, it says the word aser ti aser. The word aser comes from the word eser, which means 10, which means tithing. So it says, tithe, you shall tithe. And our sages want to know, why the double language? It just should have said, you should tithe. Why does it say, tithe, you shall tithe? And it tells us like this. In the Torah itself, there's no vowels. And there's no dots. Thus, the shin and the sin have no difference. The shin has the dot on the right side. The sin has the dot on the left side. Now, the sin, eser, means 10. The shin, ashir, means rich. 
And thus the, 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 the sages tell us, God is saying, Aser te asher, tithe and you will be rich. So much so that God actually, this is the only mitzvah that God says you can test me. Test me if I won't be true that you giving charity will bring you financial blessings. And then after that, it goes into the laws of the sabbatical laws, how it affects the fields, how it affects uh, the slaves. And then it goes into the, the laws of all the holidays. And that's pretty much, in the briefest sense, an overview of this week's Torah portion. Now I want to take, oh, I told you I was going to give you a mystical insight to kosher and about the blood. So I want to share with you. Scientifically, what you eat becomes your flesh and blood. On a spiritual level, when what you eat becomes your flesh and blood, it also happens on a metaphysical level, which means the traits of the animal that you ate will become part of you. And thus, even though the reason for kosher is because God said so, but Maimonides says, even the God said so mitzvot, you should try to learn something out of it. And what we're learning out of this is, be careful on your intake, because it doesn't only have a physical effect on you, healthy, whether you're eating fatty stuff or not, it also has a metaphysical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual effect on you. I just today saw in my studies a teaching of the Rebbe of Blessed Memory where the Rebbe talks about what the problem with blood is. The Rebbe says that even though kosher species animals are not predators, but nevertheless, they don't have refined human qualities. And therefore, by slaughtering it and making sure everything is good and by eating it in the physical digestive system, the Rebbe explains that there's also a spiritual digestion system taking place and explains this in Kabbalah with the different names, the Ma, the Ban, and explains that this spiritual digestion is cleansing the animal flesh from animal instincts before it becomes the human flesh, the human body. And then the Rebbe says like this, which is amazing. Because blood would not go through this digestive system as much as the food, in other words, it doesn't need to be extracted, the minerals and everything, it's already blood. Thus, it wouldn't have the digestive process which cleanses it from the animalistic in order to make it more digestible for the human. Thus, the Torah tells you stay away from blood. A very interesting insight of why blood, even of a kosher animal, should not be used. Now, with this, with this being said, um, I, I know I'm going a little long today. I try to keep it 45 minutes, but I do want to share with you a very mystical insight with a very practical implication. The first verse. And placing and giving to you Hayom today, Bracha, the blessing, Uklala, and the curse. Now, this verse has a couple of questions. Why does it use the word Anochi? That's a very powerful word for God, I, the essence. Why does it use the word Lifnechem? 
I am giving before you, rather than using the regular language, no sen lechem, I'm giving to you. What does it mean before you, lefnechem? And the answer is as follows. The world was created in 10 utterances. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the earth give forth. And God said, let the trees give forth. And God said, let the water get forth. So those are called utterances. Now, you have equal to this is the 10 commandments. So you have 10 utterances and 10 commandments. Let's look at the difference between the two. The 10 utterances, 32 times you have the name Elohim. Now, for those who have been around in my classes, you know that Elohim is the lower level of divinity. It's the linear. In other words, it's the finite. It's the way God says, let's pull back the infinite light, give a finite light, so that there will be a soul that fits into the body of creation. Now, when you deal with, by the way, for those who like the Kabbalistic stuff, if you add up the, the number of the numerology of God's name Elohim, it'll equal 86. If you add up the numerology of the word Hateva, nature, it equals 86. Which means that it works in the cause and effect, the finite, the, that which is absorbed. Now, what is the challenge with that? The challenge with that is, there's an answer from the Rebbe, which I struggle with. Um, and that is that a person wrote to the Rebbe that life is very hard and they're suffering. And the Rebbe answered, show me the contract God gave you that, God, that life was going to be easy. And of course, you know, for a boy my age who was brought up with Disney World, that's not supposed to be that way. It's always supposed to be, you know, they live happily after ever. And life isn't that way. Very few, if any, ever get the happily after ever. Life basically has good moments and has really painful moments. It's just the way it is. Why so? And the answer that I'm going to suggest to you is, because the 10 utterances come from the name Elohim. Elohim represents justice. Justice demands that sometimes there's blessings and sometimes there's curses. Justice demands that there isn't just this miraculous Disney World Garden of Eden where everything is beautiful, but rather there is the true struggles between light and darkness there is sickness, there is poverty, there is wealth, there is health. It all exists. And we all get our balance of it all. No one gets only blessings and no one gets only curses. However, let's go now to the Ten Commandments. The first word of the Ten Commandments is Anohi, I. And that refers to the essence of God. The second word is the ineffable tetragrammaton, which is the name of mercy and compassion. The third word is from the name Elohim. Thus we're taught that while the 10 utterances of, of creation have to deal with blessings and curses, however, when you can live not with the external dimension of the universe, but the internal dimension, 
which is that the entire universe exists so that we can have freedom of choice to study Torah, do mitzvot, behave the way God wants us to behave. Then you're not dealing just with the Elohim, but you're dealing with the Hashem and you're dealing with the Anochi. When you're dealing with the Anochi, the miraculous process of curses being transformed into blessings is obtainable. Now let's go back to this verse. Moses is telling the Jewish people, you're going into the land of Israel. You're going to deal with, ag with agriculture. You're going to deal with import and export. You're going to deal with health issues. It's no more going to be the manna and the clouds and the water from a rock. So you should know that you're going to be experiencing all that life has to offer. And when you say all that life has to offer, it's both pleasantries and not pleasantries. Thus, he's telling them, you have a choice now. You can decide only to live with the externalism of Israel, where Israel is a Jewish state, a state of Jews. Or you can decide to live with the internal of it all, where Israel isn't a state of Jews, but it is the ultimate Jewish state, which means that which has become the palace of God and operates according to God's laws. Therefore, I want to reread the verse to you. Re'ei si. In other words, most of us, our level of faith and connection to God is not seeing, it's hearing. It's a little abstract, it's a little distant. I mean, let's face it. The stock market is very real in whether we're making money or not making money. Davening with a minion, I believe it, but I can't tell you that I see it. So for most of us, we allow faith to just be that of, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Moses says, get past that. Re'e, focus, concentrate, learn to see God in everything you do. Anochi, don't just live as the world being of 10 utterances with a system of nature. Rather, live with Anochi, I. I am God who gave you the Torah and placed myself in the Torah for you to live a worldly life. And then it says, no sein lifnechem. Remember I asked you, why did it say lifnechem before you rather than saying lochem to you? And the Kabbalistic answer is that the word lifnechem comes from the word pnimius, interior, not exterior. Learn to live an ex in interior life. Find meaning and purpose and divine connection in everything we do. And then everything will be hayom. It'll all be daytime, light. There won't be no darkness, no night. And then bracha uklala. This will then manifest itself that the blessing will not only be in the blessings, but even that which seem to have been curses become blessings. And all of this depends upon how we choose to live our life. Do we choose to live our life that the heaven belongs to God, earth belongs to mankind, and yeah, yeah, God's rules work in mankind, but really, 
you know, sickness and not sickness is primarily medical, not spiritual. Um, poverty and, 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 and being able to make paranasa is really a question of physical, not spiritual. Yeah, I believe in the spiritual. Well, then we're ex subjecting ourselves to the external part of the spiritual evolution. So there's going to be blessings and there's going to be curses. However, if we can turn ourselves inwards, if we can start having a real tangible conversation with God, as someone once told me, someone said that they're now, for whatever reason, they've reached that level, they have to live that way. They said, for me today, when I go to the store, I tell God, come, come, we're going to go to the store. It becomes tangible. It becomes real. And everything that happens, of course, we need to ask ourselves, okay, what did I physically do that I can do differently? But after sight, we have to ask ourselves, so this is what happened. Where's the blessing here? Where's the deeper meaning here? And, and that is a very interesting thing. I'm going to share with you, you know, my father's on the line and he's part of the story. But I wanted to share with you how this happens for me one moment practically. So my father and I were going shopping today for suits. And it ended up, my father found someone all the way up in Broward County. And I said, okay, let's go meet there. And out of nowhere, a conversation happens. He's Romanian. And he starts talking about his friend, a Romanian Jew. And then he happens to tell me, you know, my mother was Jewish. I said, your mother's mother? Yeah, she was Jewish. From my mother's side, we're Jewish. But she married a Christian, and I'm Christian. And I said, you know, according to Jewish law, you're Jewish. And he says, yeah, I know, I heard. The, the rabbis told me that according to Jewish law, I'm Jewish. Okay, conversation continues. We're talking about the suit. My father likes this suit. When will be ready? And then I decided to do a rabbi move. I said, okay, listen, we're going to buy these two suits for you, but I want something in return. And he says, what? <laughs> I said, you just told me you're Jewish and you never had a bar mitzvah. You never put on tefillin. I have tefillin in my car. Put on tefillin. And he looks at me and says, okay. And he put on a pair of tefillin for the first time in his life. And I'm driving back and I'm thinking to myself, what did I have to my father? <laughs> Why do we have to go to this guy? There's enough stores. We actually went to stores. We went to Saks Fifth Avenue. Went this, <laughs> this guy somewhere who moved, my father remembers from when he lived in Fort Lauderdale, and I'm schlepping and this and that. And on the way back, I realized, what do you want to do? Do you want to live with the 10 utterances and it just happens to be coincidence? Or do you want to live with the 10 commandments? Do you want to hear God from a distance? Or do you want to see the internal message in everything and when it's an internal message all of a sudden i realized that god blessed my father and me to be a messenger to touch a jew's life to have him put on tefillin for the first time and all of a sudden the whole schlepping and the heat and the this and the that there's no curses it's all blessings thank you god for using me for this i'm done with the class i'm opening up